You know the passage this morning, it's Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing there today, uh, working our way through this important portion of the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6. We'll focus our attention to begin with on verse 14. This is part 2 of power and provision for spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at uh, verse 14. Give you a little time to find that place in Paul's letter. It's designated to the Ephesians. When a little girl was asked if Satan ever tempted her to do wrong, She replied, oh yes, the devil does try to get me. But when he knocks on the door of my heart, I just pray, Jesus, please go to the door for me. Her questioner asked, what happens then? Little girl replied, oh, everything turns out all right. When Satan sees Jesus, he runs away every time. She's right. (laughs) We are no match for the devil. He is a master at temptation. He is a master at seducing people to sin. But our Lord Jesus has not left us defense our enemy, the devil. He has provided for us the expression of his protection and power in the whole armor of God. When we are completely outfitted with this armor, which is a gift from God, it originates from him, Satan will have to flee from us every time. That powerful protection is delineated here in our passage this morning. It is delineated piece by piece. The use of of a Roman soldier's armor may reflect the fact that Paul, having written this letter to the Ephesians from a prison in Rome, was guarded by a Roman soldier. In fact, he had a soldier guarding him 24-7. The soldier's armor provided, we believe, for Paul an illustration of spiritual armor. The Roman soldier's literal armor illustrates spiritual truth. It shows us what the whole armor of God is like. It is a visible representation of the invisible reality of the armor that we are outfitted with from God. Now we must don the whole armor of God. Each piece must be in place. That's why we're called put on the whole armor. It doesn't say put on some of the armor. Put on a piece here, a piece there. No, we're to have on the whole armor of God. We need to have on the whole armor of God in order to stand firm. When we do have each piece of armor on, we have all that God has provided, then we're able to obey the imperative. There in verse 14 where it says, Stand firm, therefore. When we have each piece of the armor, then we can stand firm. 
In fact, the importance of having each piece of the armor in place before we can stand firm is brought out by the language here in the passage. Look at verse 14. You see the words, having girded your loins with truth. The B portion, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. Verse 16, in addition to all, taking, having taken up is how the Greek puts it. Having taken up. What these verses tell us is that you put on the pieces of armor, then you can stand. That's the idea behind the original language and reflected in the English text. It's when we have complied with the divine command to put on the whole armor of God, then we are spiritually capable of being unyielding to Satan. We can stand up against him. We can hold our ground. We can hold our spiritual position against him. The power to do so, of course, comes from the Lord. His power is expressed in the whole armor of God. We've said that previously, and that's the truth. Victory will be ours when we're so outfitted. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 11 and 12, you don't need to turn there, just listen. One of King David's mighty men, Shammah, stood against the Philistines. They intended to uh, steal Israel's lentils on a plot of ground. They thought they could do, do it, but Shammah, one of King David's mighty men, fought the Philistines by himself. He stood his ground, and he defended that plot of land. He defeated the Philistines. The text in 2 Samuel two twenty three states it like this, The Lord brought about a great victory. The Lord worked through this man who stood, Shammah, this mighty man, and brought a great victory. Likewise, when we stand fully outfitted in the whole armor of God, the Lord brings about a great victory in the spiritual realm over the evil supernatural beings that seek to undermine us, seek to undo us, seek to wreck us spiritually, seek to cause us to fall into sin. We can stand firm against them when we have on what? God has provided for us. Let's look at these pieces. We need to look at them. We need to inspect them. We need to check out what God has given to us. This, this divinely provided equipment that constitutes the whole armor of God. We can look at them individually and we can see um, their contribution, essential contribution to our success in this battle. You know it is a battle, right? We're on the front lines. They're, they're, they're all Christians on the front line here in this warfare. So let's look at the first one. The A portion of verse 14. Having girded your loins with truth. We have the mixture of spiritual reality and the physical aspect. Paul begins here with this piece of armor. I think because it, it really uh, is basic to all the other pieces. Let's tell you what the Roman soldier was doing what Paul saw here to make the, the analog to the spiritual armor. The Roman soldier wore an outer tunic. That was his basic daily uh, garment, an outer tunic. 
Well, the tunic was, it was a large piece of material that was cut out for the head and the arms. And it ordinarily just draped loosely on his body. Since most ancient battles were hand-to-hand combat, you can imagine if you have on this tunic and it is loose all the way down, it could impede your ability to fight effectively. Because it impedes your ability to maneuver. It would create a lack of flexibility. If you're trying to fight somebody, you got your tunics in the way. A Roman soldier would put on a heavy leather belt. He'd wrap it around his loins or waist. He would gird himself. He would have this heavy belt around his waist and then he'd pull up the corners of this tunic. He would cinch it up through this belt that was his girding when he did that he was ready he was ready he could maneuver flexibly he could do what he needed to do in the hand-to-hand combat against the enemy that wanted to defeat him we christian soldiers we gird on our loins our loins as well but we do it with the truth we gird our life with the truth truth here let's examine what is being meant by the apostle truth could refer to objective truth that is the content of the word of god certainly we need to know biblical content don't you agree we need to know the content of scripture We need to know what is needed to be known to stand against our diabolical foe. Biblical illiteracy is not an aid, but a deterrent, a detriment in this warfare. You you can't be illiterate relative to Scripture if you're going to stand firm. You've got to know what the Bible teaches. You need to know divine truth. However, Paul probably is not meaning the content of Scripture here. He is probably speaking of subjective truth. What he is saying here, Christians take the truth of Scripture and they internalize it. They live by it in faithfulness and integrity. And that's important because, you know, you can know what the Bible says. And not do it. You can have a scripture memorized. And ignore it. You can know what it teaches in Genesis. You know what it teaches in Exodus. Leviticus. Numbers. Deuteronomy. You can know what the Pentateuch teaches. You can even know what uh, Obadiah says. You may know that. But the real question is. Do you do it? That's what we must do. Internalize it. Live by it. In faithfulness and integrity. And when we live by it, we demonstrate sincerity and genuine commitment to Christ and his cause. So we need truth. We need truth when we're fighting against the enemy. We need to live faithfully to the Lord. We need to demonstrate sincere commitment to Christ. And that is a piece of armor that we need in order to be effective believers. Truth. There's another same verse righteousness 
and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The Roman soldier's breastplate covered his torso. That is, from just below his neck to his thighs. This uh, breastplate was made out of metal or leather, and it provided protection, as you might guess, of vital organs. It protected the heart, the lungs, the intestines, and other vital organs essential to life. And he would go into battle with his breastplate in place. No Christian soldier who intends to be victorious and who intends to stand firm against the forces of evil would be without the breastplate of righteousness. You need this spiritual equipment, this protection that it provides. In Jewish thought, let me explain. Why is it necessary? What's going on here? Why would Paul say the breastplate of righteousness knowing what it covered? This is why. In Jewish thought, the heart and intestines were the places of thinking and emotions, respectively. You know about the intestines. We sometimes say, we'll call it when we're highfalutin, viscera. And when we're not so highfalutin, we say gut. <laughs> you know, guts. You know, people say, I feel, it's, I feel it in my guts. Let me tell you what Satan's aim is. He wants to attack your mind. And your emotions. He deliberately does that. He has done this by deploying an evil system. We typically call it the world system of evil. There is it's a system. It's systemic evil. That's what you're seeing in the world. Systemic evil. There are systems Satan has uh, created a cre- and all of these systems work to create this larger system that Satan uses to attack the mind and the heart of the believer. What he wants to do, he wants to counter biblical thinking and godly emotions. Everything that the world has to offer is antithetical to all the things that Scripture prohibits or advises or counsels or directs or mandates. Whatever God is for, Satan's against. Whatever God wants for his glory and for our joy, Satan's against all of that. And the system that he has constructed, this world system that we all have to deal with, live in, is aimed at undermining godliness where the war is fought. The evil one wants you to think wrongly. He wants you to feel wrongly. Because the mind, and this is, get this, so if he can get you to think wrong thoughts, he then wants you to act on them. Same with your emotions. Now, how, how does the system, I, I've talked about the systemic evil, and I've talked about there, there are these systems these split plays. Let me give you a couple. <laughs> Number one, there is a system called entertainment. Entertainment in and of itself is not bad, but in the world system of evil, entertainment is geared 
to fill the mind with lies, with immorality. It is geared to pull you in to the Satan perspective, to the evil perspective. Entertainment is really designed to synthesize you against evil. He wants you to laugh at wickedness, except without any misgivings to things God abominates. Think about it next time you see some of the ungodliness that is portrayed in a movie or a television. I've said it before. I remember just a few years ago, it seems, when the things that are on television now weren't even conceived of, at least if it were, they weren't allowed to be there. Satan does it. And it's all designed in that system. That's what they do. And he wants to use that against you. Another system is music that fills your earbuds and go into your mind. It promotes and even glamorizes sinful ideas. Think about some of the music that is pumped over the airways. I would give you a suggestion. Listen to godly, Christ-centered music that will edify you. Help you. You know what's wonderful is to be able to have godly music come uninvited into your mind because you have a repository of it there because you've listened to it and listened to it and you know some of the words and you can then in your heart make melody to the Lord because you have godly music there I'm not going to give you an example of a sinful uh, lyric you know why because I don't want to reinforce it in your mind but think about it That's what Satan does. He uses music. And music has an emotional tug and pull. And people can remember it. Music. And so the whole system is designed to to do that. This is all uh, designed to move you to act unbiblically, to engender uh, sinful emotions. Rather than the word of God. The word of God is to be the arbiter of what is right and wrong. Do you agree? Your feelings should not make the determination of what is right or what is wrong. Uh, You know the saying, if it feels right, it must be right. That's a lie. The evil one will corrupt your emotions by drawing your your affections to wrong things and to anti-God things. That's the warfare. That's why we need the breastplate of righteousness. And in our culture, right now, uh, is increasingly and overtly sinful. What used to be kind of undercover, not anymore. I'm old enough to remember people used to sneak out of these stores with these magazines and these brown paper bags. Now you can subscribe and see the same thing. Have the garbage pumped into your house rather than going to the store getting it and bringing it to your house. Overtly sinful. The breastplate of righteousness is needed to protect us from the systemic system of Satan's world of evil. 
Well, we might need to ask, well, what is the righteousness that is mentioned here by the Apostle Paul in verse 14? Is it imputed righteousness? Um, the righteousness of Christ that is credited to us at salvation? Is that what he's talking about? We get credited to our account that is all believers, the perfect life Christ lived. Christ lived a perfect life, and that life is credited to us who are believers. It's imputed to us. Is that the righteousness our Lord is talking about? Well, this righteousness guarantees us heaven and ultimate victory over Satan. But that is not the righteousness that's being talked about. The righteousness here is the righteousness for living on earth and fighting a battle. Because when we're in heaven, we don't deal with Satan any longer, right? But here, on earth, practical righteousness. In other words, holy living. In our daily skirmishes with the devil... The forces of hell, personal holiness, uh, protects us. It shuts the door to Satan's attempts to lure us into evil. There's an example of this right here in this book, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. We are believers. We have put on the new self. That new self created in righteousness and holiness. That new self that we are in salvation. Because we have the new self. Paul can say in verse 25. Therefore laying aside falsehood. Speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. For we remember one another. See the new self person who you have the capability of speaking the truth to your fellow believer. You can be angry, but do not be sinfully angry. Do not take umbrage at what's been done to you, but be angry about unrighteous things. And yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why is that? So you don't give the devil an opportunity. The devil an opportunity. I'm going to tell you what the devil, he'll take your behavior that's sinful he will use it as an opportunity to exaggerate it for his purposes to further undermine you. You have to shut the door. And when there's practical Christian living, when there's holy living, when there's righteousness in the life, Satan can't get an opportunity in your life. He can't get a foothold. Righteous living, then, according to the word of God, is a way to slam shut the door on Satan. So we need truth. We need righteousness. There's a third thing we need here, a piece of armor. We see in verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. Peace. Invaluable to a Roman soldier was his footwear. Without the proper shodding, he did not have the ability to stand. The word shod means to bind or fasten. So he would bind on his feet a pair of half boots. These half boots had soles, and the soles were three-fourth inch in thickness. And they were studded with hollow-headed hobnails. And those hobnails, kind of, maybe we could compare it to uh, the cleats on, a, on f- football shoes. And what they would do, they would dig into the ground, and they would give the stability to the soldier rather than slipping and sliding and potentially falling and being at the mercy of the one who's in hand-to-hand combat with him. He could stand firm. 
He could keep his place. And you see the word there, preparation. When he had on his half boots, when he had those three-fourth inch thick soles studded with hobnails that held him in place, he was prepared. He was ready. He's ready to fight. Think about it. He had his loins girt. He was living in, um, he had that taken care of. He had a breastplate of righteous, protective, vital organs, and he had on shoes. And so do we. We um, live genuinely. We're sincere in our faith. We uh, live righteously. Then we have the preparation of the gospel. The gospel of peace, which enables us to stand firm against the inevitable salt, salt of the demonic powers. Now, the preparation of the gospel of peace, what we need to understand here, some people thought, well, this means preaching the gospel. This is what we do. I disagree with that. And I'm going to give you some reasons why I disagree. It's not proclaiming the gospel. It's not what Paul is uh, conveying here. First of all, I'm going to tell you why. First reason. Context. In Bible interpretation, context is king. In other words, it rules. This passage is not about taking offense. It's about defense. It's telling us what we need to do to stand firm against the devil, right? And three times in this passage, we see the word stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. In order to hold our ground. So we put on the armor to stand firm. Second reason I don't believe is preaching the gospel. The only offensive weapon at our disposal is the sword of the spirit. That's verse 17. And it is used to defend us. Third. The gospel of peace is something that we are shod with. It is for our preparation in battle. It applies to us the saints. We're not told, we're not, it's not indicated here that we are, when we're under attack by Satan, a personal attack, we're in fight with him, uh, we're not to then evangelize. Yes, we're to evangelize, but that's not what this text is talking about. That is not the purpose of the whole armor of God. The gospel of peace is for us. It's through the gospel that we have peace, right? It's the result of having faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You heard that word peace. Prior to our salvation, we were not at war with Satan and his minions. In fact, we were on their side. But when we came to faith in Jesus Christ... Our, we had a war with God, but it was over. He considered us enemies, and he was at war with us because of our sinful rebellion against him. We were insurrectionists against his rightful rule over our lives. We were at war. But by the gospel, the good news of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, we trusted him, and at that point we believed peace was made between us and God. The war is over. Now, do not make the mistake of thinking, and you might have picked this up already, that the peace mentioned in Romans 5.1 is subjective, i.e. feeling peaceful, tranquil, or calm. It's not the peace it's talking about. You know how you can get up some days, you just feel peaceful. 
You just feel calm. Everything's seemingly going okay. No, but the peace here is objective peace. It's a fact of spiritual life. It's not how we feel at any given moment. You may or may not have a calm day or feel peaceful. Have you had days like that? You have had you you didn't feel tranquil. But that does not alter the everlasting fact that you have peace with God if you're a Christian. This peace does not and cannot fluctuate with your mood. It's permanent, it's fixture. I'm glad to know that, aren't you? We have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been justified. We are his and we stand in grace. Romans 5, 2 says we don't have to worry about our relationship with him being altered because we have been reconciled to him. This connotes that we have a changed relationship with God. Uh, the changes from enmity or hostility to amity, our friendship, that has been changed. That changed our faith in Christ. His wrath against us has been appeased. Our sins have been forgiven. There is now no condemnation to those who, have, who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. No eternal judgment in our future. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous because God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. Therefore, he's declared us righteous. We have been set as sanctified. That is, we've been set apart from sin to God positionally. We're his. Adoption. We're in his family. We're not natural sons, not natural children, but he adopted us. There's only one natural son, as it were, and that's Jesus Christ. All the rest of us are adopted. All this and more because of our substitute Jesus Christ has granted this reality. That's all of this wrapped up in the gospel. You say, well, what does that have to do with the warfare? This is what it has to do with the warfare. Because we have with peace with God through Christ, we belong to him. He is on our side. We can stand sure-footed against satanic attacks. We know whose side we're on, who's on our side. That's a comforting reality. When the attack comes, we know to whom we belong. Romans 8, verse 31 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Can you name anybody that can be against us successfully? I can't. Paul goes on to enumerate who's on our side. He, he says some wonderful things about the reality of our relationship of salvation with God through faith in Christ. And then in verse 36, 37, he says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, probably the holy angels are meant there, nor principalities, probably the ungodly ones, the fallen ones, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We're utterly, absolutely secure. We can stand. We know whose side we're on and who's on our side. We stand sure-footedly when the devil attacks us so we have truth righteousness peace next thing we have is verse 16 faith faith
faith. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. All the previous pieces need to be in place. And then he says, this is what you do also take the shield of faith. The Roman soldier's shield was four and a half feet by two and a half feet and was made of wood and covered with very thick metal or leather. I think even had a a metal strip down the middle. It made this wood, these planks. And so that metal strip sometimes would deflect an arrow that come. But then the wood part of the shield also, it was... um, dipped in a thing called pitch and they would even drench it in water before they entered into battle so it would extinguish the arrows the literal arrows that come to them from the enemy it's a wonderful reality that they had the grammar of this text tells us when it talks about us when it says taking up the shield of faith it is a shield that uh, consists of faith faith here is our trust in God we have to trust God when we're attacked by the devil. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says this, He is a shield of those who take refuge in him. Notice something. It says, with the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The word all means everyone Every one of the arrows, Satan shoots at us. Our shield of faith will not fail. You, you, you remember um, Captain James T. Kirk. And um, Captain Jean-Luc Picard. You know, both of them, they're uh, captains of the Enterprise Starship. In their travels in galactic space, they would encounter, of course, aliens who were hostile to the, um, the guys on Star Trek, uh, the Enterprise. And sometimes battles would ensue. You remember that? So what Kirk or Picard would order, shields up and the officer would raise the shields and the shield was some kind of force field that would protect from the incoming fire from the alien ships. However, there were times when the bombardment was so powerful that the shields would begin to weaken. They could make you nervous because you're on the side of uh, the guys in start ship. They, they, they were immediately there at 100%, but then uh, because of the powerful bombardment from the powerful alien ship, uh, the shield's ability to withstand it would drop to 80%. No worries, you can, you can deal with that. But then it would drop further, maybe down to 80%. And boy, don't let it get below. Then it gets down to 40 And you can see where the thing is going. You can have your, your shield destroyed, and the, the Enterprise could be... Uh, considerably destroyed and there'd be loss of life. I want to tell you something. Our shield of faith is not like that. It cannot fail. It provides 100% protection against the flaming arrows of the devil. If a flaming arrow gets through to us, it is not the shield's fault. It is the bearer of the shield who is at fault. It is when there is a failure to trust God. When you trust God, you're holding up the shield. When you're not trusting God, you're you're laying it by the side. 
The flaming arrows, of course, are temptations. In his arsenal of temptations, what does Satan shoot at us? The arrow of immorality. The arrow of hatred. The arrow of covetousness. The arrow of pride. The arrow of lying. Arrows of sinful acts in a word. Shooting them. What we must do is believe God. Satan wants to tempt us with the idea when he shoots an arrow. I'm going to tell you what he's up to. He says, this will gratify you. It'll make you feel good. Here's the problem with that. In Hebrews 11.25, it says in part, the passing pleasures of sin. Yes, you will for a little bit. I'm going to tell you what sin will do. It'll take you farther than you intended to go, keep you longer than you intended to stay. When we trust God about sin and temptation, we have our shields up. And we're able to extinguish all the flaming arrows, that is, render them useless. So let me uh, give you a warning. Never, ever lay aside your shield of faith and attempt to fight on your own because you will lose. You don't have enough strength to fight him. He's called the evil one here. This identifies him as an evil personage. This is not an abstract principle of evil that we fight, but a real personal being who's malignant, and he has designs on harming us. He has great power. He therefore, is to be guarded against he is called the evil one. In First Thessalonians 3.5, he's called the tempter. But fortunately for us, we have help, right? Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, provides good theology about Satan because it agrees with the word of God. I'm going to read some of this to you. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. We're not the equal ones, the evil ones equal, I would say, and I think you'd agree. But we have someone on our side who is his superior. Martin Luther's hymn continues, lyrically and beautifully expresses this profound and glorious truth in the second stanza of that great hymn, what a mighty fortress is our God. He says this, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. End of the song. His, his rage can't endure. 
Our triumph over our infernal enemy is sure now and forever. Why? Because the man of God's own choosing. Lord Sabaoth is his name. The Lord of hosts. Jesus Christ. He has conquered him. And because of him, we win. And he's provided for us what we need to be victorious. And all praises and honor go to him in this battle. That one day will be over. We'll be in his presence, rejoicing around his throne. But until that day comes, stand firm and stand strong in the power and provision that God has given us. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for what you've given to the saints. The ones who were elected to be in Christ before the world began, Ephesians 1-4. We came to faith in history and, and we changed sides. We were once on the devil's side. We're on your side now. You're on ours. Help us to be faithful, to live out our life for the glory of Christ. Be triumphant over our ancient foe who intends to continue to work as woe. We thank you, Lord, that uh, the victory belongs to your people because of your superior power. Help us to be mindful, to live the way you have called us to do so. That we may experience your power and grace and victory. We pray for any here in this place who is not a believer who wants to come to Christ. We pray you open their heart, their eyes, that they may see, behold the glory of Jesus Christ. See him for who he is as the Savior, the only one who can deliver from sin, deliver from Satan, deliver from judgment, deliver from hell. And they'll run to him, as it were, embracing him by faith and receiving from him the salvation that he will give. We pray these things now in the name of Christ. Amen.